Well, good morning. Great to see you this morning as we have the Exodus happening here, right? Do we get going this morning? Great to have the youth with us as this, as this part of our uh, time of worship on Sunday mornings. Well, today uh, is uh, graduation Sunday and uh, a lot of people graduating, a lot of families excited about their graduate that they have that's graduating from whatever it might be, but especially from high school. And one of the things that I know about a parent as you're raising kids up is that one of the heartaches of every parent is, I hope my kid never gets lost. It's a heartache of every parent. Uh, and whether you're a parent or not, it's a heartache you have for kids that are significant in your world. Maybe it's your nieces or your nephews or whoever it might be. One of the great heartaches that we have is, I don't want my kids ever to get lost. Now, there would be a physical kind of lostness, just like the one that Jason spoke about earlier, right? That girl that was kidnapped last night and was found early this morning. Let the church say amen. She's okay. So there's that kind of a horrible kind of lostness that a parent would think about. But there's another kind that really is what I'm referring to this morning, and that is uh, being lost in your direction of your life. Every parent wants their kids to have direction for their lives. They want them to know where they're going. And it's a critical thing for us because we know about lostness, don't we? As adults, you know what it's like to be lost. You've been there before. You've struggled through that. You know the desperation that comes in being lost. And all you have to do is look around, and you can see plenty of evidence of people being lost. You open up your phone, go to your news feed, you scroll through your news feed, and there's lots of examples of people who are lost. Or you open up your computer or look at uh, TV or even open up a newspaper. What you'll find is there's a lot of examples of people who have been lost. Uh, I heard this, read this last week about a man who has been put on trial, and uh, I believe the trial is over and the sentencing phase is about to start, and he was preying on elderly people, and he would go, he would, he would, he would put on, he would act like a healthcare worker going to extended care facilities for elderly folks, and he would kill them. And then he would take their valuable possessions and, and leave and sell that stuff. That was his way of gaining things in his life. That's an example of a man who became lost. That guy has a mom or a dad, right? We don't know anything else about the guy, but I know that mom and that dad, if they are alive, they are grieving because their son got lost. So everybody knows about this idea of lostness and what lostness is about. And it is a prevailing story that the Bible presents to us again and again and again, this idea of being lost. And it presents it to us again and again and again for good reason, because we are lost people. Without God, we are lost. So the Bible takes pains to give us lots of examples of people who get lost and how they end up finding their way to help us realize that God wants to invest in us. God wants us to help us find our way when we get lost. And so today I want to talk to you about a story, one of the more famous stories in the Bible about a guy who was lost and about the story about how he found his way. It's a story about David and Likely, most of you have heard about David. He was king of Israel. But to get to David's story, you've got to go way back in time. You've got to go back 2,000 years to get back to where Jesus lived and died and rose from the dead. Let the church say amen. amen. 
2,000 years you go back to Jesus, and then you got to go back another 1,000 years past that to get to David's story. What we know about Israel is that Israel had been in captivity in, in Egypt for 400 years. When they were led out of captivity by Moses, they wandered in the wilderness for another 40 years, and they, Joshua led them into the Promised Land, and there they enjoyed about 200 years of relative security, Israel did. God was their king, uh, and they had a, a tribal uh, arrangement, if you will, of, of government. And this tribal arrangement of government was led by different judges, they're called. Uh, judges like Gideon, and, uh, Gideon and, and Deborah. These people helped lead Israel during these times. But at the end of almost 200 years, the nation of Israel was becoming in disarray. And they weren't following God the way that they really had intended to follow God. And God realized that they really needed humans to help lead them. So... They, they began, God began to raise up people to lead Israel. And one of those people that got raised up was Samuel. Samuel was a prophet. He was being mentored by the high priest whose name was Eli. And at the same time as Eli was mentoring Samuel, another man was being raised up whose name was Saul. And Saul was a charismatic guy. He was a leader by his very nature. And he was one who would join in with the, the approaches that they had militarily to try to defeat the warring armies that were around them. Saul rose to prominence in the ranks of Israel. And as a result of that, there came a time where God spoke into Samuel's life and said, you need to anoint Saul. And Saul would become anointed and become the first king the first human king of Israel after 200 years of not having a king, so to speak. Saul became king. Now Saul was, as I mentioned, a charismatic guy. He was a warrior in battle. He was probably a good-looking guy based on what we know about him. And if you read between the lines a little bit, what you find out is Saul maybe was bipolar. In today's vernacular, we would, we would look at his story and say, well, this guy might have been bipolar. And you find out why here as we go through his story. Saul was leading Israel, and Israel was being attacked by the Philistines. The Philistines were their nemesis, but Saul was unable to put the Philistines away. They continued to be a, a burr in his side, if you will. Couldn't defeat the Philistines once and for all. Until a pivotal, pivotal moment came along, and the pivotal moment came along when there was a war, that, a battle that was getting ready to be waged between the Philistine army and the Israelite army. And back in this day, the way that you warred against one another, the way you had a battle against one another is you lined up your army over on one side, and you lined up the other army on the other side, and then when, when it was decided to come the time for battle, they would rush each other and try to wipe each other out, and obviously... The victor was the one who had the most survivors. But also we know that in this day, there were some people that decided maybe it would be uh, easier uh, on a nation if, if uh, you, when you're getting ready to have battle, if you could put a representative out to fight the battle for you. And this occurs, we find out in this story about this battle that's getting ready to happen between the Philistines and the Israelites. Because the Philistines had said, hey, if you fight our best guy, put your best guy up against our best guy, whoever wins the battle wins the war, right? And we'll take the spoils, wherever the spoils go uh, to the victors. And so this arrangement was had, and, and all of Israel became concerned because the guy that the Philistines had was a guy named Goliath. And Goliath was known as a big guy. He was not just a big imposing guy, but he was a fierce warrior. And everybody knew that 
anybody that went up against Goliath was dead. And so the chances for Israel to defeat this giant of a man were slim to none from most of their uh, eyes because Israel's lined up and the call has gone out. Who would defend us by fighting Gideon? Or uh, I'm sorry, Goliath. And nobody steps out until finally, one day, a shepherd boy steps out. His name is David. He's probably a teenager. Get this picture. A teenager, a shepherd, going up against this giant of a man who's well known to be fierce in battle. But David has somebody on his side, and that somebody is the Lord God, who has told David to fight this battle, and David knows that he's going to fight and he will win. And he carries with him the only weapon that he had, which was a slingshot and five stones. He hurls the stones at Goliath, hitting him in the forehead, and Goliath falls down dead. And the next thing you know, all of Israel is infatuated with David. David's likes on his Facebook page, his Instagram page goes crazy at this time because everybody is all gaga over David. They want a part, a piece of David. Well, this has the effect on Saul of, of causing Saul to get jealous of David's notoriety. Understandably, David becomes a, a war hero, and everybody wants a piece of David, and Saul continues to get jealous. And the jealousy is fueled also by the fact that, that Saul's youngest son, Jonathan, and David become best buddies. Uh, Jonathan was basically David's BFF in today's vernacular. They were tight. They were close. They talked frequently. They were best buds. And it caused Saul to get even more jealous of the attention and the love that was being showered upon David. Meanwhile, the Philistines continued to dog the Israelites. And Saul's jealousy began to grow so much that he decided that, that he was tired of all the accolades that David was getting, and he, he developed a plan to have David killed. Well, David thwarted the plan. He was able to escape, and he runs off. He leaves and goes into exile. And in exile, he begins to develop his own army, and his army uh, is involved in skirmishes all over the place. Uh, and in, while this is going on, Saul engages in one more battle against the enemy, and it's a battle that he does not understand is actually a trap set to kill him. And they enter into battle, and lo and behold, Saul's three sons are killed, including Jonathan, the beloved one, the friend of David. And Saul is injured badly as well, and he loses hope, and he kills himself. And in the vacuum of leadership that was left behind with Saul dead, David is risen up. He rises up. And Samuel goes to David, and he anoints David second king of Israel. And Israel, if you fast forward in the timeline, if you go ahead 500 years to the time when Israel no longer exists because they've been destroyed by the Babylonians and the Assyrians, Israel would look back on the 500 years of history at that time, and they would say that the highest point of our existence was when David was our king. David was a king that allowed peace and prosperity to reign and rule in Israel, but David had his problems as well. We find out in the 11th chapter of 2 Samuel, uh, something that I reported to you a couple of weeks ago or maybe a month ago to illustrate something else. Uh, we find out that David, as 
king is, is lounging on the roof of the palace at some place and he looks over into a courtyard and he sees a woman bathing and he sees that she is pleasing to his eye. So he calls some of his servants and he says, go get that woman. And they get her, they bring her to David. David ends up sleeping with her and oh, by the way, she's a married woman. And David wants this woman. Her name is Bathsheba. He wants, him, wants her for himself. So he devises a plan to get rid of her husband. His name is Uriah. And Uriah is, oh, by the way, fighting a battle that David should have been fighting all along. But he has decided he was going to do other things. So David calls Uriah back from battle and launches a plan to have Uriah killed. He sends him back out into battle. He, David directs one of his generals to, to, to put Uriah up on the front lines and then pull your men back so that Uriah would be killed, and he is killed, and he dies, and David thinks he's got away with it. Now he can take Bathsheba for his own. So you you got to fast forward now a year past that, after David and Bathsheba are together, a year past when Uriah was killed, and there's another man that the Bible tells us about who is a prophet, and his name is Nathan. And Nathan was already in the king's court. He was already in David's court. He was someone who had advised David about architecture and about music and lots of things. He had favor with the king. And God delivered to Nathan a message that Nathan was intended to then take to David. And you read about this message in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 13, or chapter 12, I'm sorry. And let me read it to you from the New Living Translation. Listen for the word of the Lord. So the Lord sent Nathan the prophet to tell David this story. There were two men in a certain town. One was rich and one was poor. The rich man owned a great many sheep and cattle. The poor man owned nothing but one little lamb he had bought. He raised that little lamb and it grew up with his children. It ate from the man's own plate and drank from his cup. He cuddled it in his arms like a baby daughter. One day... A guest arrived at the home of the rich man. But instead of killing an animal from his own flock or herd, he took the poor man's lamb and killed it and prepared it for his guest. David was furious. As surely as the Lord lives, he vowed, any man who would do such a thing deserves to die. He must repay four lambs to the poor man for the one he stole and for having no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are that man. The Lord, the God of Israel, says, I anointed you king of Israel and saved you from the power of Saul. I gave you your master's house and his wives and the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. And if that had not been enough, I would have given you much, much more. Why then have you despised the word of the Lord and done this horrible deed? For you have murdered Uriah the Hittite with the sword of the Ammonites and stolen his wife. From this time on, your family will live by the sword because you have despised me by taking Uriah's wife to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Because of what you have done, I will cause your own household to rebel against you. I will give your wives to another man before your very eyes, and he will go to bed with them in public view. You did it secretly, but I will make this happen to you openly in the sight of all of Israel. Then... David confessed to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, Yes, but the Lord has forgiven you, and you won't die for this, for this sin. 
Nevertheless, because you have shown utter contempt for the word of the Lord by doing this, your child will die. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So in the last few minutes of my time up here with you this morning, I want to share with you what I believe are four important lessons that we receive from this story of Nathan. They're four unshakable lessons from Nathan. The first one is that you find in verse 1 is that God is going to send you Nathans. You have to choose to listen. When you have a conflict, let me invite you to consider that sometimes conflict that you have is a result of something that is not right in you, not in the other person. There are times where all of us have conflicts, and often those conflicts occur, and and we look at that other individual and we point fingers at them and we tell, we tell whoever we want to tell that look how wrong they are for what they did or what's going on. We point fingers at them when in actuality the reason for the conflict in the first place has to do with something that is not right in us. God will send Nathans. It's up to you and to me to listen to the Nathans. I know this about me, and I suspect it about you, and that is that you and I can sometimes be known as stubborn people. Yeah, some of you are saying, not me. I hear that. (laughs) Sometimes stubborn people need someone to speak truth to them, but we have to be willing to listen. They will provide insight to us, But the thing that we have to do when we choose to listen is we have to choose also to set aside our egos and be humble and listen. A second lesson that is unshakable from Nathan is that Nathan's ask probing questions. Like, will you ever have enough? When will you learn to be satisfied with what you have? Or a question like, what are you hoping to accomplish by this course of action? It is, this role of Nathan, it is part and parcel one of the things that a parent always is seeking to do for his or her children. Especially as children grow up and become adolescents, it's it's more effective for a parent to begin to have conversations with their adolescent than it is to discipline them in other ways. And a parent's role is always to ask questions to make them think about what they're about to do. Now, I know because I was one, in that time when I was an adolescent, I didn't think that my parents knew very much. But I learned as I grew out of that that my parents actually knew way more than I thought they ever knew. We, as parents, need to speak truth into our kids, and that means sometimes we have to ask probing questions. Nathan, in verse 8 of this passage, basically says, why aren't you grateful for what you have? Why don't you look at what you have as a blessing from God rather than thinking that you need more and more and more? A third unshakable lesson from Nathan is that Nathan's remind us that there are consequences to our actions. If you're like me, one of, one of the things that we are tempted to do when we face conflict is stick our head in, heads in the sand to pretend that it's not there. You ever done that? Just kind of avoid it? Just pretend that it doesn't exist? 
And one of the things that I know that Nathans do very well is they help us realize that there are consequences to our actions. And we would be much better off if we, if we would face it head on. Maybe there's something in your life, in your world right now that you're dealing with. Or maybe it's looming out there because you can feel it looming out there. It's probably like an elephant in the room that you don't like to talk about, that you don't like to acknowledge. It would be much more effective for you and your own walk with God and your own life if you would take the bull by the horns, so to speak, and deal with that issue rather than avoiding that issue. Because ignoring it will never resolve it. Too often, we don't deal with the reality of the issues that we need help with. And God sends Nathans to remind us that there are consequences to our actions. And then the fourth thing that Nathans do to help us be unshakable is that they help us use words that restore broken relationships. They help us use those two little words that are the most difficult words in the English language, and they are what? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Why is it so hard for us to use those words? Well, you know as well as I do why it's hard, because our egos get in the way, because we think, I would never make a mistake like that, and yet we do all the time. We need to be able to say, I'm sorry. And Nathans are people that can speak that into our lives and and maybe suggest to us, maybe what you need to do is say, I'm sorry for what you did. Nathan, as he confronts David, David is repentant, and it says that he confessed before God. And because of his confession, he was made right before God. God forgave him for what he had done. But there were consequences that, come, that came as well. His child would die, a hard consequence of the choices that he had made. But forgiveness is always available. And there may be someone in this room or maybe somebody watching at home who, who pushes back against the church or who pushes back against God. And maybe you're even one of those that are here today. Because you think that the thing that you've done is so terrible that nobody would ever forgive you for that. And part of the reason that we're here today, church, is to celebrate that God knows how to forgive us for everything that we've done if we would just ask. What an amazing God we have. Can I get an amen for that? That God would forgive us for anything that we have done if we would just ask. The devil likes to to, to beat us down and, and, and speak Violence into our lives. What a horrible person you are. A good person would never do something like that. And God all the time stands there ready and waiting to forgive. All we have to do is ask, and God would forgive us. So let me ask a pointed question of you today, and that is to ask you, who are the Nathans in your life? Or who is a Nathan in your life? And you understand what I'm asking, don't you? Who are the people that you could name in your own head right now who you're close enough to that, that, that they have the ability to speak truth into you even though you may not want to hear it because you know that they love you and they care about you and they only care about what's best for you? Who are those people in your life? And if you don't have someone like that in your life, why don't you? I I would suggest to you, I would humbly suggest to you that the reason that sometimes we don't have Nathans in our lives is we don't want to hear what they have to say. But we need, we desperately need those people to speak into our lives. Because if we don't have those kind of people in our lives, then our lives easily get off track. I have a bunch of Nathans in my life, let the church say amen, because I need lots of help 
staying on the right track. The biggest Nathan in my life is my wife, Chrissy. She is my best friend. Part of the reason that I love her so desperately is that she knows me. She knows my frailties and my failures, and she loves me anyway. And because of that, I am able to get back on track sometimes when I'm drifting away. Pastor Bobby, Pastor Dan are two of the biggest people that breathe life into me because they're the ones who have the audacity to question me, to ask me, what, why am I doing this? Or why are we going this direction? Or what's going on? And they are critical to my journey. And I praise God for them. There are other people that are in this room that I would consider Nathan's to me, that are friends that I would consider breathe life into me. Our 412 team here at Lighthouse, which consists of the full-time ministry directors, there is an element of Nathan in our work as a team. Because as our team has, continues to bond together, one of the things that we've learned is that, that, that healthy questioning is important to help us make sure that we're doing things for the right reasons. And those 412 team members question me as well. Our board of directors has a Nathan component to it as well. They look at the life of our church. They listen to the life of what's going on in our church. And they're willing, people who are willing to ask hard questions about where we're going, what's going on. Those are critical to the life of any church. I have a special team that I created selfishly just for me called the Barnabas team. And the Barnabas team is strictly people that love me and who who are concerned for me and love this church and are integrated into the life of this church and who, who would be so bold as to be willing to speak truth into me as I share about what's going on with me and about the life in the church. I don't lift this up to you to say that I've arrived with my Nathan quotient at all because there are plenty of times when many of you become Nathans to me, asking me questions, even in the hallways, questions that Nathans might ask. But... Who are your Nathans? Because everybody loses their way from time to time. And Nathans are put in our path by God to help get us back on track. And those of you who are graduates here today, please understand that these people are critical to your journey. People that can speak into your life, people that you have given permission to speak into your life, who can help you deal with situations as they arise. They are critical to your journey. There's a great story about a Japanese man who had become a poet back in 1689. It's recorded about this man named Basho that he was one day walking to a friend's house that he thought he knew where his friend was exactly, but he lost his way. He came across a farmer, and he told the farmer his dilemma that he wasn't able to find his friend's house. And the farmer said, oh, I know him very well. I go there frequently. And Basho said, him, well, could you take me there, please, or direct me how to get there? And the farmer said, I'll do you one better than that. He said, I'll give you my horse, and you can ride my horse, because when I point the horse in the direction of that home, the horse will take you there because it knows the way, and then it will come back to me. And later that afternoon, the horse returned to the farmer and tied to the saddle was a gift, a gift for the farmer from Basho. The horse returned. 
And I share that story with you because it's important for you and I, as we have Nathans in our lives, to make sure that we're thankful for them, to express our gratefulness for these people that can breathe truth into our lives. Did you ever wonder if David tied a, a gift to the saddle of Nathan, the prophet? Under David's leadership, after David got his course corrected by Nathan, Israel would become a great and mighty nation. Listen to what it says in 1 Chronicles 14, verses 3 through 7. It says, David married more secondary wives in Jerusalem and fathered more sons and daughters. The names of his children in Jerusalem were as follows, Shamua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibhar, Elishua, Elephalet, Noga, Nepheg, Japhia, Elishama, Beliada, and Elephalet. Now, did you notice the one name in the list of names of David's children? Nathan. David named one of his own children after the man who helped him get back on track with God. The gift that David gave to Nathan the prophet was the name of his son, to name him for the prophet Nathan. And you find the notoriety of Nathan when you jump ahead to the Gospel of Luke. In the third chapter of Luke, you find Luke giving the lineage of, of all those that are descendants of Jesus that go back into history all the way back to the Garden of Eden. And if you look in the third chapter, in the 31st verse, it says this, Son of Malia, son of Mena, son of Mathatha, son of Nathan, son of David. Of all of David's children, it was Nathan who was the one who best represented David's life. That was the gift that David had given to Nathan because Nathan was responsible for turning David's life back to the Lord. So who are your Nathans? Who is someone in your life that you have chosen to listen to that you trust? Who is someone that you allow to ask probing questions? Who is someone who helps us see there are consequences to our choices? And who helps us have the courage to swallow our pride and restore relationships with God and with others? If you don't have a Nathan, if you haven't heard it already, who are your Nathans? My challenge to you, my invitation to you today is that before this day would end, that you would make a decision about a, a new Nathan for your life. That maybe even as we sing this next song in just a moment, that you would ask God for the name of someone that might be a new Nathan for you. And that you would not let today get past without sending that person an email or picking up the phone and calling them or messaging them through Facebook, however you want to do it, and, and reach out to them and say, hey, I'd like to have coffee with you because I'd like to talk to you about becoming a Nathan for me. And just leave it at that. And, and then it, as you have coffee with them, you can describe for them what a Nathan is and how important they are to an individual. You and I need Nathans because there are storms that are coming, storms of life. And if we're going to be unshakable in those storms, we must stand on the rock that is Jesus and trust that God will send Nathans to help us find our way. 
Let's bow in prayer. God, how grateful we are for people like Nathan, who had the audacity to stand before the king of Israel and call him out, hold him accountable for what he had done. God, we need Nathans in our lives, and we pray right now for the Nathans that we need. We pray, God, that you would implant by the power of your spirit the name or the names of some individuals that we know we need to be Nathans for our lives. God, help us to be bold enough, courageous enough, strong enough, God, to to recognize that we don't have all the answers and that you provide trusted people to help us find our way because that's part of how you work in our lives, God, is through other people. We praise you for the gift of Nathans in our lives and pray that you would send more Nathans, God, to help us continue to walk with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.